right, the only announcement that I'm aware of is that just to remind people that on uh, Monday evenings there is a uh, Camparete online Zoom meeting, and on Thursdays around 11 o'clock there's a prep school meeting. You can find out about the Camparete uh, meeting on Zoom by going to the Camparete website, and you can find out about the... Um, uh, noon or 11 o'clock Thursday meeting with the prep school. I believe that should be on the uh, westhoustonbiblechurch.org website. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we need to make sure that we are walking by the Holy Spirit or walking according to the Spirit. Those are synonymous phrases, one from Galatians 5:16, the other from Romans chapter 8. And they talk about the fellowship that we have with God. It is an active, walking enjoyment of that rapport with God, step-by-step -step dependence on the Holy Spirit. But when we stop that conscientious dependence upon the Holy Spirit, then we default to the sin nature. To recover, we confess sin, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sin to God in silent prayer, and instantly we are forgiven of those sins and cleanse from all unrighteousness. So we'll begin in prayer and just... Oh, man, I got the virus. <laughs> okay, we'll start in prayer in just a minute. Just wanted to update you on Herman Maddox. Herman is doing a lot better, and he is home. It's a struggle. It will be a struggle for a while. He has to go through therapy. He's They're starting him off at first-grade readers because he has to reacquire some of that reading skill as well as speaking, so he's, you know, see, see Dick, see Dick run, see Jane, see Jane run, that kind of thing. So uh, pray for him. It will be a, a struggle. He gets frustrated at times, so, but he is, uh, he's, he's doing well, and um, uh, he's responding to all of this. So uh, please be in prayer for him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that we have forgiveness of sin. First, at the cross, where Jesus Christ died in our place, paid the penalty for our sin, that we might have everlasting life by simply trusting in him. And then as we walk with you, when we fail, when we sin, when we miss the mark, then we recover through confession of sin, all based on grace. And Father, we're so thankful for that. Father, we're thankful that we can be here tonight. We're thankful for the health of the congregation. We're thankful for all your many blessings and your provision for all of us. Give us wisdom and uh, help us to make the right relation, right decisions when it comes to... Um, when it comes to making decisions about starting up the church again and having everybody meet. Father, we pray for each of us that we might uh, take advantage of uh, the situation to strengthen our own spiritual life, but also be a witness and verbal testimony to those around us. And help us as we study this evening to understand the significance of our study and its implications for us in terms of our uh, understanding of life, understanding of the issues, and understanding of how to walk with you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this evening to Second Samuel. We are in Second Samuel chapter 17. We are looking at tonight God's provision, his faithful provision 
for David. In the same way, he always provides for us, and we will be looking at the lion's share of Second Samuel chapter 17. As I have stated in the previous lessons, just to give us this framework, this is an extremely dem- dramatic story, this story of Absalom's rebellion against David. And it begins at the beginning of chapter 15 and goes through chapter 18, and these are long chapters. And so we have four chapters, four chapters that deal with this episode, and that's a lot of words, and it's a lot of space uh, within the Word of God. And so this is something that God, the Holy Spirit, wants us to make sure we understand and to delve into the issues. It's so sad as I had the opportunity uh, today, uh, my friend Randy Price is in town uh, for various reasons. He's in Texas seeing family and his daughter and her husband live up in the Woodlands Tomball area. And so they're they're in town this week and we were talking this morning and because uh, we're trying to figure out a time schedule to get together for lunch. And I was saying, well, today wasn't a great day because I had class tonight and I was teaching on this. And he said, you know, very few churches get that kind of teaching anymore where you just go verse by verse through big books of the Old Testament, teaching what's there and taking the time to really develop it. And he really sees, it's interesting to talk to him because of his position uh, at uh, Liberty University, but he sees firsthand what is produced by the churches today because they come to Liberty University. And they're the the 18-year-olds, uh, 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds who are coming uh, out of the churches in America. And they are biblically illiterate. They are not uh educated very well if they come from a secular environment. They, their education level, their knowledge level of history, of politics, of, of uh, society, of mathematics, their ability to read and to answer questions on tests and to be able to express themselves and do any kind of analytical thinking, is it, it just isn't there. And the way the uh, professors, I've heard this from many others, uh, that I know who are teaching at the college and at the graduate level. And I see this. I mean, you talk to some of the people we have in our congregation who are taking classes at Dallas Seminary. Frankly, I don't think a THM is worth the paper it's written on anymore. Uh, it's really sad. Uh, I don't. Mine wasn't as good as what Charlie Clough had. When Charlie went through, which was before the seminary was accredited, it was, he had its first official accreditation in 1972, and that's the first time they revamped and revised the curriculum from when Lewis Berry Chafer had, had set it up. And uh, in those days, the, when George Meisinger, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, Charlie Clough, uh, Alan... Um, uh, let me see, Alan Ross, who was just here speaking. When those guys went through Dallas in the late 60s, they had to write a mini-thesis at the end of their second year. And then they had to write their graduate master's thesis at the end of the four years. That's where you learn to research. And a pastor's got to be a researcher or he needs to go you know, sell gas at a gas station or be a doctor or sell life insurance or whatever uh, pastors who shouldn't be pastors do. Uh, but now you can get a four-year THM at Dallas and you get the option not to get, not to write a master's thesis. And uh, I think that's a tragic mistake and a lot of people do it just because they, they want to hurry up, they don't want to get bogged down, but that's where you learn to write. You need to learn to write. Writing is what makes a person think precisely. Francis Bacon said, conversation makes a man full. This quote is on the ceiling inside the Library of Congress, and it's a great statement. Conversation makes a man full. Uh, Conversation makes a man full. Uh, Reading makes a man ready. Writing makes a man precise. And that really helps. I speak from personal experience. When I started writing a lot, and then I got a crash course in writing when I came here and worked for RB Theme Bible Ministries. But when I was writing, you have to be precise. And and so many people 
and pastors speak in such generalities. You sit down and you look at a transcript with these kind of generalities, it doesn't really mean anything. It may sound good with these rhetorical flourishes in their oratorical preaching style, but then when you look at it in black and white on a page, there's no content there. And you have to, to write a good master's thesis, you have to learn how to research. You have to learn who's important, who's not important, how to go find sources, good source material. All of these kinds of things, organize your thoughts. All of that is important, and if you don't do it, you miss out on that tremendous opportunity. You just don't have the education, uh, result education that people once had when they had a master's of theology. Now, Chafer Seminary is different. Uh, we we don't have have uh, uh, we have a very strong curriculum in a lot of, a lot of these these areas. So anyway, it's important to have that that background and that education. So we look at this dramatic scene in chapters 15 through 18 in 2 Samuel. Absalom begins the revolt. That's in the first 13 verses of chapter 15. Then the scene shifts to David. David hears it, and he flees. This is very dramatic, and when you sit down, I'm going to have a couple of maps. We've gone through this, but this slows down and takes time. David flees from this, what we call the old city of David now. He flees up the Kidron, then he crosses over uh, the shoulder of the Mount of Olives and goes down the other side. It's about that, from that point. It's about thirteen to fourteen miles down to the crossing over the Jordan, and he's not there yet. When we get to looking at this section of chapter seventeen, at the end of the chapter, that Hushai is going to send word to David that he needs to hurry up and cross the fords of the Jordan and get on the other side because just in case. Absalom changes his mind again and goes against Hushai's advice. He could hit him with a surprise attack at night, so he needs to get across the river. And so this is probably no more than one night, possibly two, all this action takes place. It's very, very quick. And then the battle that will come up at the end of chapter uh, 17 that's described in chapter 18 happens uh, within a couple of days. So this whole scenario takes place in a three, four, no more than a five-day window. It's, it's, it's very quick. At the same time, David is fleeing. We shift back to the scene to Absalom. Absalom enters Jerusalem. And then uh, Hushai informs David. Absalom's entering Jerusalem. Hushai meets David as he's going over the crest of the Mount of Olives. David sends him as an undercover agent into Absalom's camp, so that just takes him a couple hours to get down there. Uh, Absalom then has to uh, interview Hushai. We studied, studied this last time. He interviews Hushai and accepts his, accepts his story, accepts and trusts him to come into his camp. And then uh, Absalom, by the time we get down into the latter part of 17, will uh, move against David. And then David, uh, as a result of Hushai's warning, moves across the Jordan. He gets resupplied there. And then uh, the next day or two, the battle, battle is fought. We won't get into chapter 18 tonight, but I think we will get down through at least that sixth section, section because they're somewhat... Uh, they're somewhat short. Now, before we get into that, I want to go back and look at, summarize David's movements here. Because in the Word of God, there are a lot of patterns. In previous generations, you had uh, people talk about a category called types or typology from the Greek word tupas, which means an example. But theologically, the word type or what you know, people will call type of Christ. I thought that was one word when I was a little kid. Um, a type of Christ. What is a type? A type in that sense is an archaic word today, and it means an example. But it was, it's really abused in some systems of teaching and some systems of theology. I remember someone telling me back when I was uh, in college that... Um, that that Arthur Pink was a good author to read. Arthur Pink 
had been at one time because he was had originally been a dispensationalist, but later he became enamored with covenant theology. He changed sides, and I got his. He had a whole series of commentaries called Gleanings in Gleanings in Genesis, Gleanings in Exodus, Gleanings in different books of the Bible, and I remember reading Genesis, and everything is a type of something. Everything stands for something. Everything is an example of something. It's an example of the hypostatic union or it's ex- uh, something about this and Jesus, that on the cross, this and that. And I kept thinking, where does he get this? How does he come up with this? And then later as I studied and I was going through seminary, I realized that there's others who think that typology uh, a most, the most conservative view is typology should be reserved to those specific statements of Scripture that identify something as a type. Okay, so for example, the word tupas is used when you get into 1 Corinthians chapter 10, talking about these things that happened to the Israelites in the wilderness were an example, a tupas, a type for us. But see, that just means it's an example. That's not what type typology came to mean in, uh, in, in theology and in hermeneutics. So I prefer to look at this as patterns or examples that foreshadow what we're going to see in the person and the events of Jesus Christ. And so as we follow this, there's eight points of similarity between what happens to David at this time, and what happens to the Lord Jesus Christ uh, during his last 24 hours before the crucifixion. First point is that both David and Jesus walked across the Kidron Valley toward the Mount of Olives. Second Samuel 15.30 said, So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up, had his head covered, and went barefoot. So he's he, to get there, he has to walk up the Kidron from the from the palace in the in the city of David. In John eighteen one, uh, Jesus had spoken the words. That's the upper room discourse going into John fourteen through John seventeen, which is on his walk uh, to Gethsemane. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. So here's a map. This is a map of of Jerusalem in the first century. This area outlined in brown here is the old city of David. The rectangle to the north of the old city of David is the Temple Mount, which was roughly the same at the time of of David. But everything else is is only comes into existence after uh, the return from. Uh, the return from Babylon. So what David's palace would have been located in this this general area about where the sea is in the word city. And so he would have left there, gone down, you can see the topographical lines here marking descent, going down to the Kidron, walking along the Kidron Valley. If you've been to Israel with me, we often have made that walk. And, and Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, whereas David would have walked north further along there before he crossed over uh, the shoulder between the Mount of Olives and just, just, uh, uh, just north of there. The second parallel is that both David and Jesus were betrayed by a close confidant. Ahithophel betrays David. Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Samuel fifteen thirty one. Someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Ahithophel had been one of his mighty men. He was the grandfather of Bathsheba, and so he betrays David. In Psalm fifty five twelve, I believe it is Ahithophel who's the reference here, but it is also a, a it's also prophetic. It's messianic, talking about the betrayal of the Messiah. Psalm fifty five twelve, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it, nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. 
but it was you, a man my equal, my companion, and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. So this is, uh, this is going to be fulfilled in Judas Iscariot, which is covered in Matthew 26, uh, 20 uh, down through 25. And this is where Jesus is having uh, Passover with the disciples. In Matthew 26, 22, or 21, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And then all the disciples look at each other, and they're sorrowful, and they say, Lord, is it me? They have no idea that it's, that it's Judas. And then Jesus says how he's going to identify him. He's not really announcing this to everybody there. He's just saying it to uh, Peter and John who are nearby, and they've asked the question. And he answers and says, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. And then he goes on, and then by verse 25, he says, Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And Jesus said to him, You have said it. In other words, you're right. It's you. The third parallel is following the the betrayal, the traitor committed suicide in both cases. Ahithophel will commit suicide and Judas will commit suicide. Ahithophel's suicide is covered in one verse. We'll cover tonight, 2 Samuel 17.23. When Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled a donkey, he went home to his house, to his city. He's very methodical. He puts all of his affairs in order, takes makes sure all of the uh, information about it, who's going to inherit, everything is taken care of. And then he goes out and he hanged himself and died, and he was buried in his father's tomb. Matthew 27, 3. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful, brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, and saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what's that to us? You see to it. Take care of it. Go away. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. The fourth area parallel is that Ahithophel planned to take David at night under cover of darkness. That was his plan. We looked at that last time. His advice was to hit David in a surprise attack at night. And so that was his plan. That corresponds to Judas leading the Roman soldiers to arrest Jesus at night, it was around midnight. Second Samuel seventeen one tells us of Ahithophel's plan. I will arise and pursue David tonight. I'll get after it right away. John eighteen three. The Pharisees came to the Garden of Gethsemane to take Jesus with lanterns, torches, and weapons. The fifth area of par- parallel is that Ahithophel planned to strike only David in order to bring peace to Israel. He wasn't going to attack everybody. He said, if I attack him, we'll have peace. That's Second Samuel 17.3. Then I will bring back all the people to you. Talking to Absalom. When all return except the man whom you seek. So it's very clear. He's just targeting David, not anybody else. And that corresponds to Caiaphas's statement about one man dying for the people. Because of all the turmoil with the Romans, all the turmoil going on in Jerusalem at the time, Caiaphas makes this unintended prophecy, and he says in John eleven fifty, Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. And so he unwittingly prophesies that Jesus will die for the, for the nation. And so he wants to do the same thing. Jesus will die, and then everything will calm down, and we will have peace. A sixth point of comparison is this is a little difficult to, to catch. There is a, an inverse correspondence here. So when David, David has his followers, and they're loyal to him, and then there's the alleged desertion of Mephibosheth. That inversely corresponds to Jesus' prediction of his disciples' desertion and their avowed loyalty to him. So with David, uh, there's his followers are loyal, and there's an avowed loyalty of Mephibosheth. And then on the other side, there's the disciples who uh, avow their loyalty, but they desert, uh, they desert uh, Jesus. 
So the issue with Mephibosheth is covered in Second Samuel 15 and 16 and with the disciples' desertion in Mark 14, 27 to 31. The seventh point is Ittai. Remember him, Ittai the Gittite, who's got all the mercenary troops with him, all the Pelethites and Kerethites and Gittites. Ittai's words of loyalty to the king during his crossing of the Kidron are then echoed in John's record of Jesus' demands of his followers on the onset of the Passion events. He is going to uh, challenge them and encourage them to be obedient uh, and to follow him and to stick with him. So this is in Second uh, Samuel 15, 21. But Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, surely in whatever place my Lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also shall your servant be. Ittai is voicing the kind of commitment that Jesus is expecting in John twelve twenty six. I don't have that on the screen, but it says, If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. And then we come to the last one, which is David's temporary exile to the east which is only a few days. It doesn't give you enough information to precisely track it, but it could be three days and three nights or less. We don't know. David's temporary exile to the east crossing the Jordan and his eventual return to Jerusalem is a type or a picture of Christ's death and resurrection. Okay? Interesting how the Bible gives these patterns. Over and again in the Psalms, we see patterns in David's life that have a messianic implication, and they are messianically prophetic, we might say. So now let's go back to see where we were last week just before I ended. In 2 Samuel 17.4, we come to the conclusion after Ahithophel has given his wise advice, which is precisely what should be done, then the uh, elders of Israel, that is those who are with Absalom, the leadership with Absalom, all are impressed with it and they're very pleased with it. Now, it looks as if Absalom is not making an autocratic decision here, probably because he doesn't have the experience, he doesn't have the military experience. He is there with the advisors and the leaders of, of Israel and they all agree that Ahithophel has nailed it, but then they're going to call in. Uh, they're going to call in uh, Hushai, and when we get through Hushai's advice, the conclusion at the end of his advice is that he has overturned the advice of Absalom. And if you're the reader, the way the author builds this is is great narrative because you're wondering how in the world is David going to escape if they follow Ahithophel's advice? And then you listen to Hushai, and we know that Hushai's advice isn't as good as Ahithophel's, but God's working behind the scene to cloud the thinking of Absalom and his advisors. And when uh, uh, Hushai has given that advice, then they all think, oh, this is the best advice. This is better than the advice of Ahithophel. And then the writer, see, watch this, this clause that begins with for. For the Lord had purpose. See, that's not a quote. This is the writer giving you a, a divine uh, editorial on what had happened. For the Lord had purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. Now that tells you that God's will in this, is, in, in this situation is for Absalom to die, to get Absalom out of the way. He is going to bring divine judgment on Absalom because of his rebellion, because of the fact that he, he murdered his uh, half-brother Amnon, because of his rebellion, because of all the turmoil that he is causing in Israel. God is going to take him out, and this is really the sin unto death, for Absalom. But we, when we look at this, we're not even sure, looking at Absalom, that Absalom is a believer. There's not one shred of evidence 
in the, the, in the narrative about Absalom to indicate that he had any spiritual inclination toward God. And I think that's important uh, later, and we'll look at that next week when we look at David's, at David's grief. So 2 Samuel 17, 14 gives us the foreshadowing for the reader of what's going to happen so that as you get caught up in all the drama of the battle and in all of the movements that are taking place, we've already received the hint of how it's going to conclude that Absalom will be destroyed because that's God's will. So we go back to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 17, uh, verses 5 through 7. We looked at this last time. And this is when Absalom brings Hushai uh, into his presence and comes to him, and uh, Absalom just summarizes for him what, what Ahithophel's advice was. It says, basically in the Hebrew, if we translate it over as Ahithophel said thus and so. These are the things, these are the words of Ahithophel. So he goes through the whole thing. We're not, he, the writer doesn't want to repeat it all. And he asked Hushai, I said, well, do you want to confirm that? Should we do as, as uh, uh, Ahithophel said? And if not, speak up. And I covered this briefly last time. So Hushai said to Absalom, uh, and this isn't the best translation in the New King James where he says, the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good at this time. And basically what he's saying is the advice is not good that Ahithophel has given at this time. And he only addresses the second part. Remember, there were two things that Ahithophel said. Number one, Absalom needed to demonstrate to the people that he was in charge and that he was now the king by taking uh, David's concubines up onto the roof of the palace in view of everybody, and there he would uh, basically rape those ten concubines up there on, on the roof. That was a very pagan practice in the ancient world, uh, this is when a new king came in. This is how they would demonstrate uh, that they were now now in charge and everything that the previous ruler had was now theirs. And so Hushai doesn't even address that. He only addresses the second area of advice, and that is in the attack on David. Uh, uh, Absalom's... Uh, Absalom's approach to the to the uh, concubines on the roof have nothing to do with David. That's not a threat to David. But the uh, surprise attack at night, so soon after David gets down, his men are disorganized. They are uh, weary. It's been a long day. They're putting their plans together. Hit them fit, quick, hit them hard, hit them fast, and hit it by surprise. And that's going to be good. So Hushai has to address this. He has to address these. Uh, there are basically two elements to Hithophel's plan. The first is rapid mobilization and a surprise attack in the night while David and his men are exhausted and not yet fully organized. The second thing that's part of his plan is a narrowly defined objective. Uh, in military science, there are basically ten rules of warfare and the first is objective. You have to clearly define your objective, and he defines his objective. For Ahithophel, it is to kill David, not to mess with anybody else, just a targeted strike, go in when nobody's ready, and go straight to David and, and kill him. So when Hushai counters this, Hushai has to f look at these two issues, and he has to address them. And this is what comes out in verses 5, 6, and 7. And now in verse 8, this is what Hushai addresses the situation. And this is the first thing that he does in verses 8, 8 through 10, is he has to deal with this. And so he talks about uh, this first issue, which is success in a surprise attack. And he says, you know your father and his men. They're not going to, basically what he's saying is, they're not going to be taken by surprise. These are his mighty men. These are, he's got Ittai's warriors with him. These are mercenaries. They were with David in all those years when Saul is pursuing him through the wilderness. These are experienced soldiers, and they're, they're going to be totally prepared. You will not take them by surprise. And then he uses this very dramatic language. First of all, he says they're mighty men. This is the Giborim in the Hebrew. These are David's mighty men. 
Uh, they're, they're his crack troops. They've been with him a long time, and they are really mad. They're enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs, and remember, your father's a man of war. What's he saying? You've never even picked up a weapon, Absalom. You're a wimp. You don't have any military experience, but your husband and his men are crack troops with military experience, and you think you're going to be able to surprise him and take him out? Not a chance. They won't camp with the people. They will set up camp uh, somewhere else. This was a technique that was often followed in during the uh, uh, move west. You'll, you'll read about this. I've read a lot over the years with the mountain men, and they would go up and they would set up their camp, set up their fire, and often they would sleep away from the fire. They would sleep somewhere else, make it look like they were sleeping around the fire in case they, there was an Indian attack at night. The Indians would attack where, where there was a fire, and either they would have already moved on and they were a long way away, or they would then counter the attack uh, right away. So this is a time-honored, time-honored strategy. Uh, verse 9 uh, goes on and say, surely David, he goes on and say, David is hidden somewhere else and you're not going to find him. And what's going to happen is you're going to get your men uh, wipe, wiped out. Verse 10, he continues it and he says, even he who's valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will melt completely. You're gonna, you're gonna, he's going to come back and surprise you and you're gonna turn, your hearts will turn to fear and fall apart. Israel, then he says, this is a driving point. All Israel, everybody knows, your father's a mighty man, and those who are with him are valiant men. Don't be deceived into thinking you can take them by surprise. And then we get into the next three verses, and in these next three verses, he he gives his plan, his alternate plan. And his first point is, uh, we need all of Israel. The only way you're going to really win is if you have you outnumber them and you override them. So we need to call together all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, the, whose number is like the sand of the sea. We're going to overwhelm him and crush him by numbers. And then notice throughout, he will talk about we, we, us. So he's he's building up. Uh, he's building up uh, Absalom, and he's feeding his arrogance and his pride and his ego. And he says, so we'll come upon him in some place where he may be found, and we'll fall on him like the dew falling on the ground. And of him and all the men who are with him, there shall not be left so much as one. We will overwhelm him and wipe him out, and then you won't have to worry about these men whose loyalty is to David coming back and causing trouble in your kingdom. And then in verse 13, even if they go into a city, we'll bring ropes and we'll just pull down the walls. And so so there will be nothing left. So he can't defend himself because we will overwhelm him with our numbers. And the result is then given in verse 14, which I already talked about a little bit. So Absalom and all the men of Israel now say, wow, this is better than, than Ahithophel's advice. The advice of Hushai the archite is better and then we're told what God's plan is. So God's plan is that he's going to wipe out Absalom, wipe out the rebellion, and Absalom will not survive. Now this is important to understand in the narrative because David doesn't want to believe this. He's constantly going to be trying to make sure, don't bring harm to Absalom, don't hurt him, take him alive, but he's countering God's will. He, he doesn't want to accept it because of his emotional attachment, his love for his son. He just can't look at the situation, does not look at the situation uh, objectively at all. Now that Hushai has understood what this plan is, he's got to get word to David. He has to warn David. And remember, they set up a communication line, an underground line where he could go to... to uh, the priests, the two sons of Zadok and Abiathar, and let them know. Remember, they're in Jerusalem now, and the priests are there, and their sons are there. So this is what Hushai goes to the temple. Uh, he could easily 
go there undercover. He's going there to worship God, to pray for their success in the battle. And so there he meets with Zadok and Abiathar, and he says, thus and so, and so thus and so. That, that's just why he goes through the details of the plan. He tells what happened with Ahithophel and his council and what happened with uh, his council and how it was accepted. He said, this is what Ahithophel advised Absalom and the elders of Egypt of Israel to do, and then this is what I uh, have advised him to do. And he says, now, therefore, send quickly and tell David, saying, don't spend this night in the plains. Now, the word there that is translated plains of the wilderness, and in some translations you'll read the fords of the river. That's really what it is. But literally it says the plains of the wilderness, and the word for plains is the word erevah. And it's pronounced, it's a soft B, so it's pronounced like a V, but it is usually pronounced today the Arabah. If you look at the first two syllables, that's where we get the word Arab. Arab ah. Okay? And it, this is the area, a low, uh, low lying area along the Jordan River that goes down. Um, down below the Dead Sea and south of the Dead Sea. But this is the area, the fords of the Jordan, where the Israelites first entered in before they went to Jericho uh, back in uh, Joshua. And so he he sends this warning to David, don't camp out there by the fords. You'll be caught, if you're caught in a surprise attack, your back's to the river and and you'll be trapped. So get across the river. And so that's what he does. He goes across the river Uh, crosses over, and the warning is, lest the king and all the people who are with you be swallowed up. And this is an idiom in the Hebrew for military defeat that's used uh, various various places. In verse 17, they're going to figure out how to get the communication to David. And so Jonathan is, uh, and Ahimaaz are the sons of the two high priests, and they stayed at a place called Enrogel. So they're not on the Temple Mount. They're at this place, Enrogel. In or modern is Ein, E-I-N, and that means a spring of Rogel. And that literally means the spring or the well of the treader or the, the fuller. And this is located, I have it on this map here, uh, let me orient you. This brown line here is what we looked at a minute ago. That's the old city of David. Those of you who've been to Israel with me before, uh, this is uh, where Hezekiah's tunnel begins. You know, you've, we've stood up there. We've looked down uh, in the valley. The Mount of Olives is over here, and there's an old Arab village along here, and then um, our modern Arab village over there. And this is the spring of Gihon. And so this is where it's located. Now, if you were to walk through Hezekiah's tunnel, and you come out down by the pool of Siloam, which is where the, the kings were anointed. And then uh, back in the first trips that we went there, the bus would pick us up down here, but because this is in a an Arab part of Jerusalem, it's not the safest anymore. Now they've built a nice little walkway to go back up to the uh, to the tourist area up at the, uh, up in the city of David. But if you go just south of there, just south of that old city of David where I've put the star in that close relation where the Hinnom Valley and the Kidron Valley come together, there was a spring there, and this is Enrogel. And so they're staying down there uh, in secret so that they can receive a communication from Hushai and be ready to get uh, the information uh, to David. So they dared not be seen coming into the city. So a female servant would be sent to tell them, and then they would go and take the message to David. So they had it all pretty well planned out. But there is a spy that sees and witnesses what happens, and he's going to uh, report on them to uh, Absalom. Verse 18 says, Nevertheless, a lad saw them and told Absalom. But both of them went away quickly. So the two men are going to go as fast as they can. They're going to go north up the Kidron Valley in the same direction that David went, but they're going to go further. They're going to go just past Mount of Olives, and there's that little shoulder where David crossed over on the other side. is Mount Scopus, 
where the Hebrew University is is located, and they're going to cross over Mount Scopus and go to this place in Baharim, and there was a man there who's loyal to David, and they, he will hide them. He's got a well in his uh, courtyard, and the cor- it doesn't have anything around it. They don't have OSHA, so they don't have to put a wall up around the well. They don't have to be worried about a lawsuit and somebody falling in. So they go there, and they go down into the well. There could have been even a a, a ladder or staircase to go down, and then they would uh, get the water down below. So if you want to see this on the map, here is uh, Jerusalem here, and they would go up north, go up the Kidron Valley, then cross over Mount Scopus, and then there's the location of Baharim. Verse 19 goes on to tell us that there's a woman there, uh, probably the man's wife, and she took out some, uh, some cloth, a rug or something, spreads this covering over the well's mouth so that she disguises it, and it's not clear that there's a well under there, and then she spreads a grain across the top of it so it's well disguised. And then when Absalom's ser- servants come to the house, they're asking, where's Ahimaaz and where's uh, Jonathan? So she said, well, they've left already. They went down over the water brook, and so they searched and they searched. They couldn't find them, and then they returned back to Absalom with a report that they they didn't know where they went, and they couldn't find them. Now, verse 21, after that, they de- after they had departed, they got, were able to go down the uh, route down to towards Jericho and past Jericho to the fords of the Jordan, and they... Uh, told David uh, the message to get up quickly, cross over the water quickly, for thus has Ahithophel advised against you. So they don't tell David that Hushai's counter advice was what Absalom was going to follow because they have to take in a worst-case scenario. That's always great leadership. Always think in terms of what is the worst-case scenario, and we have to have provision for that, you have to make sure that if something bad happens, you have the the plan and the procedures in place to take the right action. So they, David and all the people uh, get up. They, they were probably settling into their camp, and now they have to cross over the Jordan. Now, the Jordan then is not this little bitty, weak little wimpy stream that you see now. It was very, very strong river that came down from the Sea of Galilee. Now, there's so much uh, irrigation, there's so much water that comes out of the Jordan south of the Sea of Galilee that's used for irrigation both on the Israeli side, but a lot is is taken by the Jordanians on the Jordanian side that when you go to these areas down close to the Dead Sea, there's, on one of the trips, two or three, two or three trips back, we stopped at the new site they have there for where John the Baptist baptized and it's not as the the river is about half as wide as from here to the back of uh, back to the front of the sound booth there so it's only probably about the water is only about 20 to 30 feet wide so it doesn't look real powerful and you can easily walk across it or swim across it although my guide said no you don't ever want to baptize anybody here that has been coming down from the sea of galilee it's got all this chemical runoff from all of the uh, agricultural sites, and it has all this other stuff in it. He says, last thing you ever want to do is get close to that water. So David and his people cross over the Jordan, and by the next morning, so it took them most of the night for all of the people to get across the Jordan. Uh, all of them made it across the Jordan. So here's the map. Here's Jerusalem, the yellow dot here. David's line is the red line that goes uh, east, down across the Jordan, and they cross over the Jordan, and then they head north to Mahanaim. So just remember where Mahanaim is, is there, because we're going to see that mentioned in in the next section. Absalom is going to take off, and he goes north, up past, past just past, or just up to Shechem, to Shechem, and he then is going to head east, cross the Jordan there, and he will meet David, attack David, where David is fortified at Mahanaim. Now, 
there's a pause in the action, there's a scene shift, and we shift to Ahithophel in verse 23. And this is the uh, when we're told about Ahithophel's uh, suicide. He knows that he has rebelled against the king. He knows that because his advice was the best advice, that if his advice is not fo- not followed, that David is going to defeat Absalom. And he knows that this must be God's will and he can't fight it. And if, if uh, this happens and he's sure this will happen, then that means he will be executed uh, for being a traitor. And so he is going to go out on his own terms, sets everything in order. This would have taken a day or so, get, make sure everything is arranged. And then he goes out and he uh, hanged himself and was buried in his father's tomb rather than with criminals. Then we shift to David. So we were with with the scene in Jerusalem, the scene with David, the shift back to what's going on with, uh, with Ahithophel, and then now to David. Then David went to Mahanaim. So we saw the line there on the uh, Transjordan side across the Jordan on the east side. And then Absalom crossed over the Jordan and all of the men of Israel with him. And and then we're told that Absalom, so we're reminded what David did. Focus goes now to Absalom. Uh, verse 25, Absalom made Amasa the captain uh, of his army instead of Joab. Well, Joab is the general over the army, that's, but he's David's son. Now, you remember who these, these, this is a family affair. You have to remember this, that Joab is the son of Zariah. Zariah is David's sister. So that means that Joab is David's nephew, right? Okay, now here we're introduced to Amasa. He's the son of a man whose name was Jithra. So that's his father. He's an Israelite. And he had gone into Abigail, the daughter of Nahash. Now this is a textual problem and it's and and the, it it shouldn't be Nahash, it should probably be Jesse, but there's you know the second Samuel and first Samuel second Samuel manuscripts have more textual issues than any other Old Testament book because Abigail is the sister of Zariah. So Abigail is also David's sister. If Zariah is David's sister, then Abigail has to be David's sister. And so that means that Abigail is Joab's aunt, and she is the um, mother of um, Amasa. So that makes Amasa and Joab, what Joab, Amasa is um, the daughter, I mean, the son of Abigail. And Joab is the son of Zariah, so they're cousins and nephews of David. See, it's all a family affair. You got it? This makes Dallas look like a mediocre soap opera, doesn't it? So there, there, Amasa is now now the king. Now what's going to happen when we get to 2 Kings 20 is that, that Joab is going to basically execute Amasa. And that's really what what David decides. That's the last straw, and he's going to end up before he dies telling Solomon that he has to take care of Joab because he's just out of control. So Israel and Amasa encamp in the land of Gilead. So this whole area on the Transjordan, that means across the Jordan, on the east side of the Jordan, everything is from the perspective of Jerusalem. Across the Jordan is the Transjordan. If you're on the Jerusalem side, it's called Sis Jordan. I mean, yeah, uh, Sis Jordan on the west side of the Jordan. So this is the territory of Gilead. So we come to verse 27. It happened when David had come to Mahanaim that he is welcomed with open arms. Why is that? Well, if you think back, this was where Mephibosheth the the son another son of of uh, of Saul was was living and David had dealt with Mephibosheth in grace and so they welcome David 
uh, when David came to Mahanaim, Shobi the son of Nahash. Now, this is a different Nahash than the one mentioned earlier, probably where we got the textual variant. Uh, this is the king of Am- the Ammonites. Uh, Nahash from Rabbah of the people of Ammon. Rabbah is uh, the capital of the ancient kingdom of Ammon. And Machir, the son of Amiel, and from Lodabar. Now, he's mentioned earlier also, he's very pro-David. And Barzillai the Gileadite, who we find out is very old at this point, but these are men that are used by God to take care of the logistical needs of David and all of the people who are with him because they couldn't get away with a tremendous amount of food. So they brought beds, basins, earthen vessels. They needed cookware and something to eat out of. They brought wheat, barley, flour, uh, uh, parched grain and beans, lentils and parched seeds. So they are supplying all of the the groceries for, uh, for David. Uh, honey and curds, sheep and cheese of the herd for David and the people who are with him to eat. For they said the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. So we see God's provision for David. This is God's grace. He's taking care of David. This is going to strengthen the people physically because they're going to have nourishment. They're going to have food. And it is also Uh, an encouragement to them that God is providing for them, and so they're going to survive, and God's going to give David the victory. Now we come to chapter 18. Chapter 18, we see David organized for the battle. Uh, 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 Absalom has come. Absalom is camping out, and so David organizes his people. He numbered the people who were with him. So first of all, he finds out how many fighting troops he has. And he set captains of thousands, captains of hundreds over them. So he divides them up into platoons and companies and uh, battalions. Then David sent out 130. So he divides them into three groups. One of them is under the command of Joab. One of them is under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zariah. Remember when they attacked um, Rabbah, back before we got into the uh, uh, Bathsheba incident, that that Joab had the frontal assault and then the reserves were in command of Abishai. So you have something like that in this situation. You have Joab taking a third of them, Abishai has the reserves, and then one-third are the professional mercenaries under Ittai, you have the Carathites, the Pelathites, and the Gittites, those who are from Gath. And so they are, are ready to go, and the king has them all organized, and they set up their plan of attack in verse 2. And David says, I'm going to go out with you. I will lead the troops. Now, David has an, a, a, another agenda. His agenda is to protect Absalom in the battle. But what happens? What happens is the people are used as the voice of God to stop David. David doesn't want to follow God's will here. He he isn't accepting the fact that Absalom has to be killed, and so he's not listening to anybody. This is comparable to a situation that happened back in 1 Samuel where where Saul uh, Saul has made this rash vow that they're going to uh, attack the Philistines, but nobody can eat. Everybody's got to got a, a fast until they've won the victory. Well, that's a stupid vow because people are running out of energy and everything because they they can't they don't have any nourishment. And Jonathan and his armor bearer go climb up uh, climb up the cliffs and they assault the Philistine garrison from the back. And along the way, they're famished and they don't know anything about this vow. And they uh, they ate honey and drank water, and that refreshed them. And so they they were victorious in their attempt to take out that Philistine garrison. And then when Saul found out about it, he's going to fulfill his vow that whoever eats is going to be killed. And the people all rise up and tell him, you can't do this, that was a stupid vow, you're not going to kill Jonathan. They, the voice of the people stopped him. So in this rare instance, the voice of the people is the voice of God, that Latin phrase, vox Populi vox dei, the voice of the people is the voice of God. And so in verse 3 here we read, but the people answered and said, you're not going to go out. 
You're not going to lead the troops. For if we flee away, they will not care about us, nor if half of us die, will they care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us now, for you are now more help to us in the city. One thing you need to notice before we come back next time, and that is their loyalty to David. They are willing to all die to preserve David's life. This is important to understand that mindset. They are willing to make the ultimate sacrifice so that David can live. And we'll come back and look at uh, what happens after this with the battle in the rest of chapter 18 and then into chapter 19. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to see your oversight in your sovereignty in this situation, just as in the situation we're in, that we are to trust you, that when we put our trust in you, then you make our paths straight, just as you did with David. Uh, He's trusting you. You provided uh, the information he needed to escape. You provided the food, all of the logistical grace blessings so that everybody with him could be fed and could be properly nourished to go into battle. And you're the one working behind the scenes to cloud the thinking of Absalom and his advisors. Father, the same kinds of things still go on today where you work behind the scenes. And even though things look desperate at times and we look at our own politics and our own government and wonder how in the world things can straighten out, Anything can be straightened out if you're with with it and you're behind it, and we need to learn to trust you. And that happens whether we're talking about the uh, national destiny or whether we're talking about just the problems we face with our own employment, uh, with our own families, with our own situations and the dramas that go on in our own lives. We know that we can trust you, and when we put it into your hands, you will work things out. And Father challenge us with this lesson of faith and trust that we see that runs all through this episode with Absalom's rebellion. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.